Good to have you with us, Soul Community, whether uh, or wherever you're at right now. Uh, I, I'm just pumped that you're here. That little video gives you a, a quick insight into what it looks like to connect with our church community uh, during this time, and so we encourage you to do that uh, in a variety, those variety of ways. My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here, and today I have the opportunity to continue our series in the book of First Corinthians. And today we are in chapter 15. Uh, this week, as, uh, as I turned on the television, like most of you, I was captivated by the images that were coming out of the United States. And, and we have a country down there, our neighbors to the south, whom we love, uh, whose electorate is split down the middle. You know, uh, they have all sorts of controversy with two contending parties. And while one party leader encourages trust in the process, the other party leader um, um, perhaps uh, uh, throws out the accusations of of fraud, and uh, the followers of those leaders on one hand follow the cues of their leader, which lead them to one sort of action, and then the other followers of their leader follow that leader's cues, and it leads them to a different sort of action. Whether we are waiting or protesting or counter-protesting or whatever it might be, uh, the, the actions of the electorate uh, correspond with the story that they have chosen to believe that has been uh, offered to them by their leader. Now, with that being said, I am a preacher and not a political commentator. And so I'll reserve my judgment. I'm not quite interested in commenting further on, uh, on the situation in the South, except for to say this, to illuminate one reality out of that, which is very pertinent to our scripture today, being what you believe has a direct correlation to how you live. What you believe to be true, the story or the narrative of, of the world, your worldview perhaps, what you believe to be true directly impacts the way that you live. I mean, to put it simply, what I believe about the little yellow flowers that pop up on my lawn in the springtime, what I believe about those little flowers will either justify me clipping them and putting them in a vase and presenting that vase to my wife, or if I call those dandelions, those little yellow flowers, a weed, I can justify killing it with poison. You see where I'm going? What we believe has a direct correlation to the way in which we live. And this is important for our passage this morning. What you believe about God and about his creation will impact the way in which you live in it. So our passage again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 12 to 31. Let's start verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Look back with me to two weeks ago where Pastor Jordan McClellan unpacked for us verses 1 to 11. And, and these, these verses, they recount that Christ died for our sins, and Paul adds on, according to the scriptures, right? That he was buried and that he was raised from the dead, Paul adds on, according to the scriptures. Paul is outlining to the Corinthians that the death and the resurrection of Jesus has been a part of the plan the whole time. That like right from the beginning, this was God's intention. And we know because we can look back to the Scriptures according to the Scriptures. Now, 
Paul says, we're not making this thing up. You know, this, this has been the plan. And, and I, Paul speaking to the Corinthians, have been faithful in preaching this. But then Paul addresses a concern that has obviously come out of the Corinthian church. He says, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, then how can some of you, Corinthians, say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, if you remember back in our series as we've come through the book of 1 Corinthians, there is this anti-Paul sentiment that, that is prevalent, that, that, that people are speaking out against him at, at numerous points. And, and there are people in the Corinthian church community who have come against Paul. And here Paul, in his letter to them, is retorting them over and over. And here he is again. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, what does that mean? It's not so much that the Corinthians didn't believe in miracles, like let's say Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Quite the contrary. We know by, by reading earlier in 1 Corinthians that they really loved the supernatural stuff. It's more so that they did not believe that there was a future resurrection for Christ followers who had died. In this passage, Paul outlines the importance of the fact that those who have died in Christ or those who have died believing in Christ will one day be resurrected. That that dead physical bodies will be reanimated by the Spirit of God when Christ returns. That the decaying bones of the faithful, you know, the decomposed molecules, wherever they might be of Christians past, will mysteriously and gloriously be rearranged in the form of a physical body. This is resurrection, that once, what was once dead is now alive. The idea that the ultimate Christian hope is to float around in heaven with other Christian souls for eternity is not an image that comes from Paul. It's a, it's a modern innovation, really. The, the, the future, it's actually an ancient heresy and a modern innovation at the same time. But the, the, the future Christian hope is not one of a disembodied uh, existence where your soul and your body are two separate things. But the future Christian hope is actually of a transformed physical reality. In Eden, God and man walked together. But we know that, that sin enters the equation and, and sin separates God and man. But God's plan is a return to an Edenic relationship that comes about through Jesus. It's not a ransoming of souls out of, their, out of the brutality of their, their physical existence, but it's a reclamation and a reconstitution that God is doing of the physical through Jesus. What started in Eden, God and man walking together, ultimately ends in Eden in a new and a glorious reality. God has not and God will not abandon the physicality of our world. Rather, through Jesus, through the incarnation, God becoming man, He has redeemed our world, the physicality of our world, from the powers of sin and darkness. And we're going to get to that in just a a moment. Paul is addressing here with the Corinthians uh, isn't so much what happens in the life after death. Yeah, track with me here. It's not so much what happens in the life after death. It's rather what the theologian N.T. Wright, uh, how, how he, he puts it, it's what happens in the life after the life after death. Okay, hear me out. 
So, so what happens when you die, right? The Christian tradition has many ways of answering this question. Uh, what, what happens when you die? As a Christian today, we have a deep appreciation for the variety of ways in which Christians have interpreted this. But if we're going to boil it down, to, to be put succinctly, Jesus tells the criminal next to him, uh, as Jesus is on the cross and the, and the criminal is as well, and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says that, that it's better for him to depart. He wants to depart from this life so that he can be with Christ. The Christian can rest assured that uh, to, to be absent, my late grandmother, um, she died uh, a year and a half ago or two years ago almost, and, and I can remember a couple, like the week of her death as we're sitting in her room uh, she's still talking and coherent and with us, and she knew that her time was coming to an end. But she said this. She said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I think this is a beautiful and simple summation of what, it, what happens after we die. When we look to the scriptures, you know, uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And, and so to, to keep that conversation, we could preach sermons and sermons on sermons on what happens after you die, but our conversation is not about the life after death. It's about the life after life after death. And so you might ask yourself, like, Jordan, okay, so if I know that I'll be with Christ after I die, then, then what is, what it, well, why, why am I even concerned about what happens after that? You know, if I know that my hope is secured in Christ, then, then what does the rest of this even matter? What is Paul's discourse with the Corinthian here, Corinthians here? Why does that even matter? But yeah, you need to go back to the beginning. Remember that what you believe about God, about his creation, about this life, will ultimately impact the way in which you live in it. There's this critique out there, and, and I mean, I've heard it now probably more than ever, that, you know, Christians just like are, are pumped to get to heaven when they die, so they don't really care about stewarding the earth, or they don't really care about, uh, you know, actually following in the ways of Jesus, because they think that they have their hope secured in, in, in floating off to heaven one day. But what we believe about God and about his creation will change the way in which we live in it. So, let's get into it. Paul's talking about resurrection of the dead. When we look to the Old Testament, it becomes apparent rather quickly that, that the, the ancient Jews had a concept of future resurrection. In Isaiah 29, or 26, sorry, verse 19, uh, the prophet Isaiah says, your, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth shall give birth to the dead. Resurrection, I mean, right throughout that. Uh, in the apocalyptic, apocalyptic images of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Moreover, in the story I referenced earlier, the death of Lazarus, Jesus says to Martha, your brother shall rise again. And Martha replies, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha, being a Jew, she has this concept of future resurrection. It was probably instilled in her from her upbringing. Jesus doesn't simply agree with her, though, and say, yes, yes, Martha, your brother will rise again, you know, at the last day, at the end of all things. No, Jesus says something astounding. He comes at her, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though they die, yet shall he live. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This bewilders Martha, but then Jesus goes and does something equally as bewildering in calling Lazarus out of the grave. In Matthew 22, Jesus, he rebukes the Sadducees for misunderstanding the scriptures and misappropriating God's power when they denied that that there is any sort of future resurrection. In uh, uh, Acts 17, Paul, he's in Athens, and he's preaching in the Areopagus. He's preaching with the Athenian intellectuals listening to him. And as he goes on, he speaks of the one true God, about Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And then in verse 32, he says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Paul preached the resurrection of the dead. This is a core tenant of the gospel. It was a part of the ancient Jewish texts. They understood that some sort of future resurrection was coming. Jesus, uh, Jesus embraced that, embodied it, declaring, I am the resurrection of the life. And Paul taught and clarified it for us moving forward through the scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The, the scriptures and the earliest Christian creeds uh, and, and uh, the, the earliest Christian movements affirm the resurrection of Jesus and the subsequent resurrection of our future bodies. The subsequent future resurrection of our bodies. So that's verse 12. We got like 20 verses more to go. Let's go. Okay, verse 13, Paul continues. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. But Paul's like following the logical consequences here, right? So if if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Paul is like putting the stamp on it here. And if Christ has not been raised, what? Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. None of this matters. Then also, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Those who have died in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Do you hear how emphatic Paul is here, man? He is making the point. He is laying it down. He appeals to reason to break down this argument for the Corinthians. It's if, then, if, then, if there is no resurrection of the dead, as some of you are saying, if death is the final end of the Christian, then it is apparent that Christ has not won victory over death, that Christ has not won victory over darkness, and if Christ hasn't done this, then there is no Easter Sunday, and if there is no Easter Sunday, then what is this whole Christian thing about? Paul argues that if Christ has not been resurrected, then there is no Christian hope for the future. That those who died in Christ, believing in Christ, are lost. And those who live in Christ now are the most to be pitied. 
And not only that, they, they, are, they are believing a lie. And it's a lie which not only removes any future hope, but it's a lie that distorts the present reality. A lie that does away with God's past promises. Paul's saying to us that the resurrection of Christ is not about just going to heaven when you die. Rather, it is the redemptive, reconciling, and resurrecting work of the God of creation. The Christian hope in the present and in the future hang on the resurrection of Christ. If Christ has not been raised, then none of this matters. Then you watching at home right now, it doesn't matter. Then the songs we sang earlier together, it doesn't matter. If Christ was not raised, nothing matters at all. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Paul is parsing out a theology of resurrection. Christ being the firstfruits is the image of Christ being the down payment of our resurrection. God has raised Christ from the dead and in doing so secured the eventual resurrection of all of the saints when Christ comes again. For Paul, Adam symbolizes the commencement of the reign of sin. The consequences of Adam's sin in Eden have plagued humanity since Eden. It's because of Adam's sin that Paul can say in, in the book of Romans chapter 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Paul's, Paul's connecting Adam, the first man here, as responsible for, for the sin that has, has, has been brought up, uh, on all of us. We've all sinned, Paul says in, in Romans 3.23. But in Romans 3.24, it is because of Christ that Paul can confidently declare that all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So uh, uh, Paul's saying, in Adam, we've fallen. In Christ and his resurrection, we are liberated. In the resurrection of Christ, it's actually the... Hey, what's up, y'all? <laughs> How we doing? Okay. We're back at it. I think you can hear me now. This is good. This is good. This is good. This is good. Okay, we're talking about Adam. We're talking about Adam. And now I have two hands. We're talking about Adam and how Adam uh, symbolizes for Paul the commencement of the reign of sin. 
and Christ having been the undoing of Adam's curse. Let's back up a little bit. Paul parsing out the theology of resurrection, right? So Christ is the first fruits, uh, meaning Christ is the down payment of our resurrection. God has raised Christ from the dead in doing so, securing the resurrection of all of the saints when he comes again. For, for Paul, Adam symbolizes the commencement of the reign of sin, the consequences of Adam's sin in Eden, right, that have plagued humanity. And it's because of Adam's sin, back in Romans 3.23, that he can say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's because of Adam's sin, it, or it's because of Christ's resurrection, that in Romans 4, uh, or in Romans 3, verses 24, one verse after, Paul can confidently declare that all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption which came by Christ Jesus. It's in the resurrection of Christ that the undoing of Adam's curse has begun. The resurrected Jesus is now Lord and Savior. Lord in that He reigns as sovereign over all of creation here and now. And Savior in that He has delivered us from the trappings of sin and from the finality of death. Put on your, your grade 6. For me, this was grade 6. We had to read uh, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from C.S. Lewis. The whole box set's on sale at Costco right now. 20 bucks. You can, you can go into some like really good literature here for 20 bucks at Costco, okay? But we're going to go into C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And if you can recall, maybe you saw the movie. If you can recall, in the land of Narnia, it is under, a, uh, under the rule of the White Witch. And, and Narnia is stuck in an absolute deep freeze where it was always winter and never Christmas. Always winter and never Christmas. It sounds just like Manitoba. Am I right? Okay. But at the arrival of Aslan into the land, the arrival of Aslan, there's the first hope of spring. The blooms come out. The birds start to sing. But the witch won't be so easily outdone. And, and after having her plans to kill, or to kill Edmund, who's been a traitor, having her plans to kill him thwarted. The witch makes a secret deal with Aslan to kill Aslan in Edmund's place. And there's this climactic scene where it actually gave me nightmares when I was a kid for a while. I saw it in like an old animated version. But there's this big scene where Aslan is tortured and eventually dies. And at the torture and death of Aslan, both Susan and Lucy... Some of our main characters come to see his body and they find that his body is gone. Susan declares, kind of throws up her hands in the air and is like, what does all this mean? And then majestically, Aslan, almost as if over their shoulder, shows up on the scene, the resurrected Aslan, and he speaks to them, startling them, and he says, it means this, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And death itself would start working backwards, right? Aslan's death in the place of the guilty traitor Edmund and his resurrection began the undoing of death 
in Narnia where the deep winter that had frozen the land for so long had begun to thaw. Uh, The death of Jesus Christ in the place of you and me and his subsequent resurrection has begun the undoing of death in our world today. It's a thawing of our hearts. It is the working backwards of death itself. The, The resurrection of Jesus is the reason that we can wake up in the morning and declare that Jesus is Lord. Like the the kid's song goes, it's the kid's song when I was in uh, Sunday school as a child. He's got the whole world in his hands, right? That is why the resurrection is why we could sing a song like that. At the empty tomb of Jesus, death begins working backwards. And according to the Scripture, This backward backward working culminates in the resurrection of the dead when Jesus returns. Resurrection robs death of its final claim on those who are in Christ. Resurrection gives us hope for a future. In verse 24, Paul continues, Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, Paul's quoting the Psalms here, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God might be all in all. At the end of all things, at the end of all things, Christ will once and for all, destroy the powers of sin and darkness that entangle us. Verse 25 says that He must reign until He has completed this, and even then, death will be destroyed. For Paul to say that He must reign until insinuates that Christ is already reigning. That that again, the resurrection of Christ has initiated the working backwards of death and that this culminates in the destruction of death itself when Christ returns and when the saints are resurrected. But as Christians, we don't just live out our days with the hope of future resurrection far off in the distance. Rather, Christ's lordship and reign over the present ought to change the way that we live now. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, Paul says to the church in Philippi, but we, so he's talking about those saved by grace who find themselves in Christ, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies, and change them into glorious bodies like His own, using the same power with which He will bring everything under control. His control. Here's the thing. You and I, we're we're no stranger to this. We live in a weak mortal body, prone to sickness, prone to disease, prone to fatigue, prone to sin, prone to rebellion. 
But at the same time, you and I are already called a citizen of heaven. Being a citizen of heaven means that our job is to bring the culture of heaven here into our present existence. We live in the tension that His kingdom has come, but not yet in its fullness. Our job then as His image bearers is to say, this is the culture of heaven, and here it is on earth, and my active hope in the presence is living in the, in the present is living that out. This is the ultimate Christian hope in the present. That the, the way that things are is not the way that things have to be. This should bring joy to your heart and to mine that the way that things are is not the way that things have to be. The, the message of Christ's resurrection is that God's new world is here and that you and I are invited to participate in it. You know, we acknowledge this reality in in the act of water baptism. When immersed in the waters of baptism, we join Christ in His death, right? We die to our sin. And when we are raised from the waters of baptism, we join Him in His resurrection, announcing to the world that we are a new creation that is subjected to Christ's Lordship. Our present hope is for a better future in this world. Remember, God is, God is not just, He's not about to just ransom our souls from this physical reality. He's going to reclaim and renew. And in fact, is, since the resurrection of Christ is already beginning that process, the, 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 the uh, course of death is being unwound. You know, following in the mission of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christians You and I, we labor together to preach the good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty for captives and freedom for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn. This is our task here in the present. This is our hope here in the present. We have a unique calling, you and I do, to participate in God's good creation. To carry the light of Christ wherever we go and whoever and whatever we interact with. To carry on the work that Christ has started and that Christ alone will complete. The Christian hope in the present is truly the only hope for our world. The Christian hope here and now is the only hope for our world. In verse 28, after Christ defeats death, Paul declares that God will be all in all. The culmination of the gospel is that there will come a time when God will rule supreme over everything, everywhere. Where death has ultimately been defeated. It's been unwound so much that it is gone And that the powers of darkness have been completely destroyed and everything will come under the righteous, the judge, or the just, and the eternal power and reign of God. God will be all in all after Christ has defeated death. Verse 29, now if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? 
and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. There are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. Dial back, verse 29. Touches on a contested point of Scripture. Paul's talking about those who are baptized for the dead. And the jury is still out on exactly what practice Paul is referencing here. But it seems as if there, there are some people being baptized in the place of those who have died. And this isn't what Paul uh, and other New Testament writers would have taught about baptism. Uh, but he actually doesn't spend time correcting this practice. Rather, he continues to ask the question, to make his point. He's like, what use is their faith and what use is my faith if it causes me troubles here on earth and is actually not true? Paul, like, like, why would I suffer if there is no hope in the present? Why would I fight with wild beasts in Ephesus, which is presumably a metaphor for, for preaching the gospel in hostile territory? Why would I do that if there was no hope for the future? No resurrection means that Paul has been played. That you and I are fools. Paul puts an emphatic stamp on his point again. He draws from Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 22, 13. If the dead are not raised, then Paul says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Think about the meaninglessness of our existence if Christ has not been raised and if the dead will not be raised. If there is no present Christian hope and if there is no future Christian hope. If there is no Christian hope, period. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If the dead are not raised, then Christ was not raised. Then the cross is powerless and death will reign, and darkness will never be defeated, and God cannot bring all creation into completion and perfection, and God will not be all in all. But, if the dead are raised, then surely Christ was raised. Then surely Christ reigns. Then surely death is being unspun and worked backwards. Then surely this material world will not be wasted but continually redeemed by God, who will one day gather everything to Himself in completion and perfection, being all in all. Paul is telling both the Corinthians and you and me that what we believe about the resurrection of the dead will change the way in which we live in this world. The Christian hope is both a present and a future hope. Christian hope in the present leads us to participate in this world, creating beauty, acting justly, bringing glory to God with every action and word, living your life intentionally, not as if it's a mistake and that you're here by chance, but that your existence here in the now has the ultimate purpose of glorifying God, of speaking 
to His goodness, of speaking and testifying to His faithfulness, and to the goodness of our physical reality, God's good creation. There's a quote that hangs on my wall, and it's hung on my wall for years, but as I turned to it this week, it came to life in a new way. True godliness does not turn men out of the world, but enables them to live better in it and excites their endeavors to mend it. True godliness does not send me fleeting into communities far removed from everything happening in my present world, no matter how scary 2020 might be. True godliness excites me to move into that world, to move into 2020, to bring the redemptive hope of Christ wherever I go. That is true godliness. It enables me to live better in the present because I have hope that what I do now matters. Now, Christian hope in the future is the reality that for you and I, one day when Christ returns, if we have died, that we will be raised to life. And that those still living at that point will not see death. Our hope in the future rests in the restoration of God's good creation and life and life to the fullest with Him. So our present hope and our future hope is what makes the Christian hope. This is what makes Christianity unique, unlike anything else out there, uh, unlike any worldview, thought, uh, system, philosophy, other religion. This is the Christian hope. This is the primary distinguisher from everything else out there. The resurrection of Christ, the subsequent resurrection of the dead, the Christian hope in the present that this life you live now is not meaningless, and our hope in the future that one day God will be all in all after Christ Jesus defeats death. N.T. Wright, theologian, he says, belief in the bodily resurrection includes the belief that what is done in the present body by the power of the Spirit will be reaffirmed in the eventual future in ways at which we can only presently guess. Belief in the bodily resurrection includes the belief that what is done in the present body by the power of the Spirit, you today, what you do with the rest of your day, the way that you love others, the way that you participate in nature, in God's good creation. For me, my compost in my backyard, you know what I'm saying? Like the, the way that we live presently will be reaffirmed in the eventual future in ways at which you and I presently only can guess. To be truly living, soul sanctuary, is to live in the mystery, is to live in the wonder of the future bodily resurrection, which turns us out of the or, or, or out from ourselves and into the world to be the hands and feet of Jesus wherever we go. Let's pray. Creator of the universe, you made the world in beauty and you restore all things in glory through the victory of Jesus Christ. We pray that wherever your image is still disfigured by poverty, by sickness, selfishness, by war, by greed, by injustices of all sorts, that the new creation in Jesus Christ might appear in justice, 
love, and peace. To the glory of your name, amen. So sanctuary in times of old, the one giving the blessing would extend hands. Those receiving the blessing would do likewise. If you would like a blessing this morning, I invite you to stand right where you are and extend your hands. So sanctuary, as you go, go in the power of our mighty God. Go believing in the hope of Christ and living in a manner worthy of your calling. Go confident that He will uphold us with His hope of the final morning when in the glorious presence of His risen Son, we will share in His resurrection, being redeemed and restored to the fullness of life and forever freed to be His people. So sanctuary, go in peace.